0: this episode, climate activists campaigning in Japan and Taiwan, where radical protests are rare, and in Hong Kong, where they're currently seeing their biggest political protests ever. The Extinction Rebellion groups in these countries all have the same problem. They're mainly run by expats. Can a concept that works in the UK be exported to any country in the world? And who should be the ones to export a protest model? Ultimately, should expats or locals run the movement? I'm Freya Prati, and this is Global Warning, taking a critical look at Extinction Rebellion around the world. Chapter 2 Foreigners. So, Elisa, you've focused your reporting on East Asia. Why did you choose there, and how did you start out?
1: So um, actually, I started in Hong Kong because I wanted to find out how people protest during a protest, like how are the XR protests going in the big general protests that are going on there. So I read an article in the South China Morning Post and I saw the picture of the XR activists there and they all looked really European. So I, I thought to myself, how come? Like, why is that? It's actually a thing XR is approached of in the UK as well, that it's a mainly white, middle class movement. But I did not know if it could be the case in other parts of the world as well. So at first I looked at other groups in the region. um, And I realized it's the same in Japan and Taiwan. It's always Americans, Brits and French people that just started and that are struggling to get locals on board.
0: But might people in Hong Kong have other things to worry about?
2: In Hong Kong, the it's siege kind of, of a major university is now in its seventh day. days for the people of Hong Kong. We've been seeing this for months. The Government protesters in Hong Kong have taken to the streets for months to make their voices heard.
1: Yeah, obviously, it's hard to get local support in a city that is in total chaos. But when they started XR in Hong Kong in spring this year, the Hong Kong protests were still a lot calmer.
0: So how did they start out?
1: So actually it was Harriet from England who works in the English department of a university in Hong Kong and Olivier who works at an international bank and they're both in their 30s, they live in Hong Kong and Harriet um, said actually that she was really feeling frustrated and very alone um, because she was really worried about the environment and she saw her friends in the UK starting Extinction Rebellion groups and getting involved. Extinction Rebellion was founded nearly a year ago in the United Kingdom and quickly spread across the globe. But she couldn't find anything in Hong Kong. And Olivier felt the same. So they met up in a cafe and they started a Facebook group.
0: So I think it's interesting you said Olivier is a banker and an Extinction Rebellion activist.
1: Yeah, it seems like a paradox, but he says he thinks it's very important that XR welcomes everyone. And he still struggles a bit to reconcile his two identities.
2: It's a daily struggle, I would say. But it's also... um... Maybe a way to to bring uh, changes uh, from inside, even if those changes can be uh, uh, rather small uh, in a in a big company like an like a international bank. But yeah, at this stage, um, I focus on uh, on XR and not too much on my uh, what my work is. Although indeed, uh, for me, it's a constant consideration whether or not I should uh, I should look for another job or um, dedicate myself
0: fully to XR. So Harry and Olivier are both expats. Um, Are there any locals in the group?
1: Um, Yeah, it's not like they don't have any locals at all, Um, but it's just really few. Um, But there is, for example, Perry. He's 15 years old. He's a high school student from Hong Kong and in Hong Kong. And he says he was really impressed by the creative strategies XR is using to raise awareness. But he does acknowledge that it's not easy to mobilize locals in Hong Kong for radical climate protests. He says people like might be aware that climate change exists, but it's, they just don't see it as a big threat to their like, normal everyday lives. And obviously in Hong Kong there are much bigger protests going on. So it's a big decision protesting for the climate instead, says Barry.
0: And can you explain a bit more about how the Hong Kong protests that we hear a lot about have influenced Extinction Rebellion?
1: So yeah, Harriet is explaining how they went about it in the last months, especially when the Hong Kong protests were not as violent as they are now. It has been challenging to
3: to think about how to protest given the current situation in Hong Kong. Um, most of the the democracy protests in Hong Kong happen at the weekend and that's also when we would ideally protest because that's when you're most likely to get at most you know most people and be able to raise most awareness um so we have to factor that in in terms of our location and the time that we decide to protest um it also means that we've changed our colors so uh our first protests in may we dressed in black um and since then that's very much become associated with the with the um Hong Kong protests, so now we tend to wear bright colours and to try and bring out the blues and the greens and the um the environmental colours more than than the black colours. Um it's also made it more difficult to get permits to protest. So staging large marches um and getting lots of people to to agree to join has become more difficult because without a police per- permit you're always risking arrest if you if you turn up and there's more than 50 of you. So it has had an impact on how many people we've been able to mobilise but I think it's also pushed us to, to try and be more creative in small groups. Um, as Olivier was saying, there are ways to be effective when there's only 10 or 15 of you but they normally involve you doing something that's a little bit more obvious, um, like a die-in or a funeral march, and so we're constantly trying to come up with new ways to protest that that will be different to what people are already seeing in Hong Kong, because walking with banners um, and dressing in black is very much associated with the with the Hong Kong protest generally, and so we definitely need to find different ways to highlight the climate and ecological crisis.
1: So, Harriet has just mentioned um, that they do die ins. That means they meet as a group in a busy public square, for example, near Hong Kong's ferry piers, and most of the group lies down on the floor as if they were dead. And that's a symbol for the dramatic effects of climate change. And then two or three people of the group hand out flyers to explain what they are doing. But XR is not the only environmental group in Hong Kong, they are the groups, and XR is cooperating with these groups. So with them together, they do like normal protests where they just march through the streets with banners.
0: Mm -hmm. And what do these other groups say about Extinction Rebellion?
1: So I talked to Ringo Mack. He's the co-founder of the 350 Hong Kong Group. And 350 is a global environmental organization mainly focusing on acting against climate change and on divestment from fossil fuels. And um, Ringo Mack is in his 50s, he's mainly focusing on his work for 350, having semi-retired from a position in management. And he said they have mostly locals in their association and they mostly do advocacy work and very general protests, but not anything radical. And they also focus a lot on local concrete projects. For example, they're protesting against an artificial island that the Hong Kong government wants to build. And they also advocate on concrete policy to change the government actions. So it's not like the vague, abstract concept of protesting against climate change in general like XR. But Ringo Mack and 350 are still collaborating with the XR group. He just thinks the strategies XR is using in the UK could not work at all in Hong Kong, especially in the current climate.
0: Any radical or any kind of uh, dramatic action by any group uh, advocating for any cause the government, especially the police, will treat you like a rioter. So that's what our four collaborating groups uh, agreeing that we would do peaceful, ready, peaceful gathering and peaceful marching uh, in the coming months without doing anything that will let the government or the police think that we are part of the movement. Uh, of the Free Hong Kong Stand with Hong Kong movement. So foreigners aren't just dominating the group in Hong Kong, as I understand. It's also a similar case in Taiwan. Elisa, what's going on there?
1: So in Taiwan, Jen has started the group. She's an English teacher. She's originally from the U.S., She's 26 and she moved to Taiwan three years ago. And she read more about climate change and she wanted to become active in an environmental group. But in Taiwan, it was difficult for her because she found no other group who spoke English and her Chinese wasn't quite good enough to join a Chinese-speaking group. But she still wanted to act. She also said she wanted to act for her students who are 7 to 10 years old. And she said when they get older, they should not have a future that's a lot worse. So what are Extinction Rebellion doing there? So um, during their last action, for example, they were in Simending, which is the main central shopping area in Taipei, the capital of Taiwan. And um, they sent us a video of it. So they are all dressed in green and black, the XR colors with green face paint and green paint on the arms, and they staged a dance to Michael Jackson's Earth song. And some members were holding big posters with XR slogans like We're sleepwalking into a catastrophe, wake up, or No food, no future. They had help from local groups to organise this protest, but the majority of the people on the video participating in the XR dance were still foreigners. But Jen said she would like the group to be led by a Taiwanese instead,
0: It's just, I am a foreigner and, you know, I don't want to come across as someone telling people what to do here because it's not my country. Uh, But I just, you know, I started the group because there wasn't one here and I did it for my students. So, you know, once there is some more Taiwanese that are willing to step up and take leadership roles, I'm going to let them be more of the leader because they should have a Taiwanese leader because it's Taiwan. And why do you think there are so few Taiwanese people in the exile group there?
1: So to find out, I talked to Tony. He's a Taiwanese friend of mine, and he's active in or cooperating with almost any environmental group you can think of in Taiwan. Right now, he's a graduate student in renewable energy engineering in Germany, and has also joined local environmental groups there.
0: So what did he say about why local people might not want to be involved with exile?
1: So, he gave many reasons. Firstly, he said there are just not many radical protests in general, and if they are, they are mostly on very local, very threatening issues like chemical factories being built next to a village, workers' rights being severely damaged, or the sunflower movement in 2014 when students took over the parliament to block a trade deal with China.
2: Hundreds of Taiwanese protesters have marched through the strategy ...toward the government made the Sunflower Movement possible.
0: Students, protesters and 24-day occupation of Taiwan's
1: parliament. But in the population, there's a lot of criticism of radical protests and of blocking roads at train stations. And um, the Sunflower Movement meant they stopped the trade deal. But politicians don't usually step down after protests, especially not after environmental protests. And the change, Tony, my friend, said, the change only happens at elections.
0: I guess um, the sunflower movement and the chemical factories you have mentioned, they're both uh, protests on quite concrete things with concrete demands. And that's, to me, seems quite different to the climate crisis.
1: Exactly, because climate change is still really abstract. Most Taiwanese know about climate change, but Tony says few are really aware of the direct consequences climate change can have on their daily lives. So it's basically like in Hong Kong, there's a bigger threat that it's coming from China. And this is what people worry about, and this is what the politics revolves around.
2: Taiwan's military is testing its firepower against the threat of invasion by China.
1: Actually, the political spectrum in Taiwan is not aligned from left to right. But there's one big party advocating for a more independent Taiwan and another one that's more for the status quo and more pro China, so the left framing of climate change of extinction rebellion is really foreign to Taiwan
0: so by that you mean the idea that we have perhaps in Europe that climate change is the, an issue for the left and put forward by the left
1: yeah, that's what you said basically, and that's why also the local environmental groups in Taiwan are actually framing the need to act on climate change in a very different way. So when they talk about divesting, like getting money out from fossil fuels, they talk about the economic risks. And when they talk about renewable energy, they say Taiwan can become independent from importing coal and gas and oil, and Taiwanese products can become more attractive on the global market if they are produced in an environmentally friendly way.
0: Could you expand a bit more on how they're focusing on economics?
1: So actually, economic growth is still very important for a lot of people here, as, as Tony explained to me. When you are trying to do any kind of radical actions, you are disrupting the current system. And, and that's the point, because we cannot grow as the way we, we did, like the eco- economic system has to be uh, redesigned for, for having a sustainable future. Uh, but that's like directly against the mindset or ideology of perpetual economic development that, the, that these East Asian nations have enrooted in, in their society due to the historical growth they witness. So, rapid economic growth led to high living standards and also got Taiwan a respectable position in the world economy. So, disrupting the current economic system would be perceived as a big threat by many Taiwanese.
0: So another country in the region where I understand Extinction Rebellion is run by foreigners is Japan. Um, And I think that's interesting because this threat of China isn't really in the context there. But from what I understand, the problems Extinction Rebellion are facing are, are quite similar to Taiwan and Hong Kong.
1: Yeah, exactly. So here it's Simon from Wales who founded it and similar to Harriet, Olivier and Jen, He was really desperate and he just wanted to do something. He saw the rebellions in the UK and he just thought, okay, I'm going to open a group in Japan if there's none.
0: And what did he end up doing?
1: So there are a few actions. Again, Dian's are the strategy here. They did some dian's in a park in Tokyo. Um, But the problem in Japan compared to Hong Kong and Taiwan is really the size. So... Hong Kong is a big city and Taiwan is not much bigger than Wales, but Japan is the size of France and it's, it's much longer. It's much more stretched out, if you know what I mean. So Simon sits in this town in the very south of Japan and it's really hard for him to move around.
2: From here to Tokyo on the train, the bullet train takes about six hours or if you were to fly, it's about an hour and 45 minutes. So we're pretty, you know, it's, it's difficult to take part in any of the Tokyo activities that are going on. So I'm kind of down here on my own.
0: So Simon himself is from the UK, but I imagine uh, the way they're protesting, that he's protesting in Japan, is, is quite different to what's happened in the in the UK.
2: Yeah,
1: it's really different, he said.
2: We're not at that situation that the UK was in a year ago where they can shut down large areas of Tokyo. I mean, I I'd love to go and shut down the Shibuya crossing and chain ourselves to it, I'd absolutely love to do it. But if we did it, we'd be, that would probably be the end of XR in Japan. So it,
0: if the group isn't particularly radical, or radical compared to the context it's in, why are they still not managing to attract locals to the group?
1: So they, they have a few locals, and Simon certainly wants locals on board. But I talked again to a local activist to find out why there aren't so few locals on board with Extinction Rebellion. So I had a chat with Irina, she's 23, and she just finished uni. She will start to work in a renewable energy firm soon. And she joined Fridays for Future, so the student protest movement on climate change, And she joined it after coming back from an exchange in Germany where they are quite big. For months, students across Germany have been ditching school every Friday to take a stand against what they see as slow political action towards climate change. And before she went to Germany, she was already active in another environmental organization, Japan Youth for Climate. And they didn't do any protests, though. They just said advocacy work with the government. Because protests are just not a thing, she says. And um, when she joined the Fridays for Future protests in February, she was still at uni and also job hunting.
0: Japanese people, especially young people, think it's not good to... uh, not to obey those big authority. (laughs) And during my job hunting, I've participated in the first protest in Tokyo. But people said an action, my protest affects on the results of job hunting, people say. I heard her saying, like, for young people in Japan, it's it's important to obey the authorities. Could you expand more on what she said about that?
1: Well, that's what Irina said. And of course, you cannot generalize it. But Simon had an anecdote about that too.
2: I've had friends who are university students here and they've, they've gone to their um, their professors and said, you know, about Extinction Rebellion and about um, Friends of Future and about the crisis and they're just like, oh, don't worry about it, it's fine, the government will sort this out, don't worry, the government will sort this out and you're like, wow, for a professor to have that much faith in the government, that, I mean, just like eight years after Fukushima as well, after the government lied to people.
0: So might the problem be that climate change is just less talked about in Japan?
1: So the problem is certainly not that people don't know about it. According to an Ipsos survey in spring 2019, in Japan, 52% of the people believe that climate change is a serious issue. That's more than in the US, Canada, or even in Germany. So many people know about climate change and it's taught at school, but many are not aware of the direct threat yet. That's what Simon and Arena said. And natural disasters, for example, are not always connected to climate change in the media.
0: So people do seem to know about the threat of climate change. And and unlike in Taiwan and Hong Kong, you don't have the overriding threat perhaps of China. I'm wondering then why is it so difficult to get people involved in climate activism?
1: The Japanese society is shrinking, which is difficult for the economy. And Irina said it is then really hard to understand for people if you say, oh, it's good for the climate if we have less children. And also, people might be scared that a more ecologically friendly lifestyle will reduce their high standards of living. That's what Irina said. So, overall, economic growth has got Hong Kong, Taiwan and Japan a respectable position on the global stage and high living standards for the people. And the XR ideology goes against economic growth especially. And in Taiwan and Hong Kong, you then also have the bigger threat from China, which is seen as much more imminent than climate change. And before the big protests in Hong Kong started, radical protesting was really not a thing and in Japan and Taiwan it is still very rare. So those people who have joined traditional environmental groups might think advocacy work with the government and framing climate change in a way to make it clear how it affects local people might be more effective and exhaust strategies might even be counterproductive. So from
0: your reporting in these countries, what do you think about the prospects of the XR model being exported around the world like it is now?
1: So I think the UK XR model cannot just be exported like that all over the world and be expected to work. But I still think the experts in Hong Kong, Japan and Taiwan are aware of that. And they are adapting their strategies, doing die-ins, for example, instead of shutting down crossroads. And all of them really feel the urge to do something. Later, after the interviews, the group from Hong Kong sent me a voice recording of a meeting in which they talk about how they feel at the moment. And this is what Harriet said.
3: I'm feeling pretty bad at the moment. (laughs) I feel like every time I read something good that's happening, I then read something terrible that governments are doing or, you know, fossil fuel companies are doing, and that's, that's bad. And also... In a kind of strange situation because I'm actually pregnant. So I have some quite dark feelings about the future.
0: Next episode, we're heading to a region where conflict, upheaval and repression frame the XR movement. How do XR groups in the Middle East campaign during a revolution, an occupation and a ban on protest?
2: From here to... Tokyo on the train, the bullet train takes about six hours, or if you were to fly, it's about an hour and 45 minutes. You know, it's, it's difficult to take part in any of the Tokyo activities that are going on. So I'm kind of down here on my own.